This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today is September 11th, 2019. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, alongside my co-host, Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Hello, Mark. Hey, how are you doing? I'm glad that you're joining us today. Can't decide whether I should limp to the left or the right. As you know, I hurt my back two weeks ago on the right side, and I broke one of my left toes, so it's hard to know even how to limp right now. (laughs) That is not a good place to be in. No, it isn't. Is your toe hurting less? Much less. Yeah, I couldn't even, I couldn't even uh, come to work yesterday. I couldn't put on a pair of shoes. It was just excruciating. So, And I wasn't going to, even though we have a casual dress policy now, I was not going to come in my socks. No way. Well, I'm glad that your chipper spirit is still with exactly. us. Exactly. All right, who's joining us today? Joining us today is Candy Gunther-Brown. She's professor of religious studies at Indiana University, author of many books on the history of religion in America, including Testing Prayer, Science and Healing, Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools. And she's helped edit a volume, Global Pentecostal and Charismatic Healing, which will play into what we're talking about today. So welcome, Candy. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you as well. So I'm assuming that you are calling us based in Indiana then? That is correct. Has it been a good summer out there? It was hot for a spell, but I tend to like the heat, so I have no complaints. Yeah, I'm exactly with you. People who listen to the show all the time know that Mark is always about the cold, (laughs) but poor him. All right, you can keep that. (laughs) All right, so let's get into our topic today. Last week, longtime prosperity gospel preacher Benny Hinn had an announcement. He said this. And I'm correcting my own... uh, uh, Theology, and you need to all know it, the gospel is not for sale. And the blessings of God are not for sale, and miracles are not for sale, and prosperity is not for sale. I think giving has become such a gimmick, it's making me sick to my stomach. And I've been sick for a while, too. I just couldn't say it. And now the lid is off. I've had it. You know why? I don't want to get to heaven and be rebuked. So Hinn's comments had many questioning whether the Israeli-born preacher would be turning back on the theology that made him famous and rich. Our coverage of this particular story noted that Hinn had previously rejected the prosperity gospel for the first time in the late 1980s and again in the early 90s. This week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to go deeper on Benny Hinn's background and explore other famous prosperity gospel televangelists and pastors in this world. So before we ask Candy some questions about 
all of this. Mark, how did you react to this announcement by Benny Hinn? I was surprised. I wasn't aware that he had done this twice before. Seems to me in light of that, he's a person who's deeply conflicted about what he does. And I'm not quite sure how to understand that. I don't, I've not read enough about him or listened to him enough to be able to psychoanalyze him, especially since I don't have a degree in that. But that would be my first impression is that he is deeply conflicted about that. I'd also say that that might be true of many prosperity gospel preachers because many of them, many are accused of being prosperity gospel preachers. Many of them say they deny it, that they're not that. I'm hoping to get into that with Candy a little bit because it does seem to be, there does seem to be some ambivalence about the term, the phrase, and the theology behind it. Yeah, I'm really with you. Like, is there someone that actually says, like, that's what I am, a prosperity gospel preacher? Really seemed like that would be more a way that those of on this and the outside might group folks that have some sort of characteristic together. I will also say, according to our story, this announcement came on a three-hour, 50-minute broadcast. As someone who did not watch, I I read the article that we published on this, but I did not watch the three-hour and 50-minute broadcast. What else was being talked about during that time that may have either further supported the fact that he tends to turn away from this or is a little bit even more contradicted? contradicted. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I also am with you. I don't really have a good sense of who Benny Hinn is, especially in the long breadth of his career. It is something that we did want to note and talk about. Candy, maybe our first question for you is, given that Mark and I have just said we don't know a lot about Benny Hinn, is who is Benny Hinn? So he was born in 1952 in Israel and migrated to Canada. He started off in the Greek Orthodox Church, but then he gravitated more towards Pentecostal and Charismatic Christianity. And as Hinn tells the story, one of the most important formative influences for him was a woman by the name of Catherine Coleman, who was a very influential charismatic healing evangelist in the 1960s. 60s and 70s, who is definitely worth conversations uh, in her own right. Hinn attended a Coleman miracle service uh, in 1973. And, and really, Hinn has modeled a lot of his ministry after hers. Very characteristic of Coleman is she emphasized Holy Spirit is a person, not an impersonal force. And she came to prominence in the 1940s when she was an evangelist with uh, one parent was a Baptist, one was a Methodist. This was not coming out of classical Pentecostalism at all. She was really just preaching the message of Jesus died to kind of save people from their sin and give them life with God. And she would talk about the Holy Spirit in her services. And in 1947, a woman stood up in the middle of her service and said that she had been healed of a condition while Coleman was preaching on the Holy Spirit. And this came to characterize Coleman's ministry was a welcoming of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then people would just say that they had been healed. She wasn't praying for them. She didn't have big, long healing lines. She actually didn't have a lot of patience for that. And Benny Hinn has really kind of emulated this in his ministry, even the way that he often has dressed, which has attracted a lot of attention. He comes in 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 fully white suits. He modeled that on Coleman, who would wear white dresses, which she modeled on Amy Semple McPherson, who modeled that on Mariah Woodworth Eder. So there's actually the stream of healing evangelists. So more the ministry of someone like Coleman, and, and Benny Hinn talked about this, even 
even when he was making his kind of, if you call it, renunciation statement a, a few days ago, he said he was called as an evangelist to preach the gospel, to pray for the sick, to pray for empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not to focus on financial prosperity. And incidentally, that's not a direction that Coleman's ministry ever took. So really, Hinn got his start in the 1970s. He founded the Orlando Christian Center in 1983, and then he took on more prominence. So by the time you get to the 1990s, he had a, a broadcast, This Is Your Day. And crucially, he published a book called Good Morning Holy Spirit in 1990. And it really had that emphasis that Hinn was recalling in his recent statement on just living in the presence of the Holy Spirit and that focus on kind of Jesus's ministry, Jesus's message. The the teachings on prosperity started to grow up with that in the 1990s and, and really even the 1980s, but that's not where he started. I would just mention for our listeners, we, we do have an article on Catherine Coleman coming up in the October issue that they might be interested in. So that's a very good connection. You're, what are you working for our marketing department, Candy? What's the deal here? That's very good. That's right. Maybe I need to start. When we hear the name Benny Hinn, oftentimes there's a couple other names that also come up. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about some of these other leading, you know, so-called prosperity preachers and their backgrounds. So there are a number of other figures who, when there is media coverage of prosperity, the same names come up over and over again. Figures like Joel Osteen is probably one of the best known because he has just an enormously large church in Texas. Paula White, who's got a lot of prominence because of her advisory position with Trump, her role in kind of the giving the invocation at his inauguration, regularly counseling him. She's had more of a basis in Florida. Someone like Joyce Meyer in Missouri, Creflo Dollar in the African-American church in Georgia, someone like T.D. Jakes uh, also in the African-American church in Texas. And I would say that really characteristic of, of all of these figures and, and others is that they have megachurch followings, so they've attracted a lot of listeners, but they've also made very strategic use of the media. None of them is strictly teaching kind of a message of prosperity. I wouldn't say that that is kind of certainly the only thing that any of these individuals are talking about. And as both of you reflected on earlier, they're generally not really comfortable with being called prosperity teachers or preachers because they want to be associated with the gospel. It's that their interpretation of the gospel is that it includes more than salvation. It includes healing, but it includes other kinds of prosperity, and sometimes in in ways that are quite easy to caricature as being all about money and all about the personal finances of those ministries. I interviewed Joyce Meyer back in the day, in the 90s, I think. She explicitly wanted to make clear in that interview that she was not a prosperity health and wealth preacher, so that's uh, very characteristic. I, I'm curious, are these individuals people that you're going to find showing up to each other's events? Do they show up each, on each other's social media do they hang out with each other a lot? Or is this has been something that, like you said, the media and maybe researchers have kind of like designated and put them together? You do see them showing up at each other's events. You do often see them speaking well of each other's and each other's positions. I don't think it's simply an artifact 
of reporters to put them into the same category. They're, they tend to be more Pentecostal and charismatic in theology. There's more of an emphasis on the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit. But it's not as much of personal sharing the stage connections as you've actually seen in previous generations of some of their forebears. I think they've taken on more individualized ministries, but I don't think it's a mistake to put them into the same category. What type of institutional presence have they had with potentially hosting conferences, starting organizations, starting publishing houses, and so forth? Most of them being now a fairly amorphous category, but if you think of the most prominent individuals kind of associated with prosperity theology, most of those individuals have arisen to that stature because it's been a multimodal approach that they've taken. So they've written books, often with Christian presses. Those books have sold well. They have churches. They also have nonprofit foundations. They have radio and or television broadcasts, and they do occasionally share broadcasts or have one another as guests on on their shows. And so it's an informal kind of network of communication, but that's also partly why it's effective is it's reaching out on, on multiple levels. And the internet, of course, would be a part of that. And so the use of Twitter accounts and social media. Who first coined the term prosperity gospel? And what can you tell us about kind of where the roots of the theology derive from. If you go to Oxford English Dictionary, (laughs) it actually points to a 1908 newspaper article from Fort Wayne, Indiana, that used the term. And and the phrase was this, the prosperity gospel has been preached just the same in all the lake ports. So the term's been in currency for some time. Often it is used by critics of the movement to say, oh, well, that's a prosperity theology or that's health and wealth. It's not the real gospel. So it's it's used often as a kind of pejorative term for a departure from Orthodox Christianity. But more leaders than you might think are actually okay with, with using the term, at least in common parlance. Although then sometimes you'll get those same leaders and you, you want to pin them down or interview them and they'll say, well, no, I don't want to be characterized with that phrase because of all the negative connotations, especially, and the the negative connotations really kind of took off in the 1980s when there were all kinds of scandals over televangelists, over both financial and sexual improprieties. So in some ways, there's the pre-scandal and the post-scandal version, but the roots of this movement go far further back from this. If you talk to one of the prosperity preachers, they would say they go back to, to the Bible, to New Testament teachings. Oral Roberts, who was one of the mid-20th century pioneers said that it was in 1947 that he discovered 3 John 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. But well before Roberts, if you want to kind of just look at U.S. history rather than saying, okay, well, maybe it dates all the way back to the Bible, you can find roots in the early 19th century with someone like Ralph Waldo Emerson, not a, certainly not a mainstream evangelical, probably 
probably by any definition of that term. But then you see a lot of the same kinds of threads in the development of the new thought movement of the 19th century, again, outside of what would generally be termed evangelical Christianity. And you get other kinds of movements in the 19th century, such as muscular Christianity or kind of rags to riches success models. So there, there's a real kind of blending of Christian traditions, but also broader cultural traditions. What we've seen in the course of U.S. history is a kind of interweaving of Christian theological emphases and things that are in maybe more metaphysical strains of religion or just kind of cultural developments. And they really have mixed in together with each other. So, I mean, you could look within Christian traditions at the divine healing movement that developed in the mid-19th century and that blossomed into Pentecostalism at the turn of the 20th century and then banded further into the charismatic movement of of the 1960s. But then you also can look at metaphysical religious movements such as New Thought. And then you can also just look at the development of capitalism and self-help and individualism. And it's really difficult to kind of tease out which influence is the, the leading influence or the most significant because they really do overlap and shape one another. In one sense, speaking in the most charitable way I can imagine, imagine one could say it is it is a way a certain group of christians have tried to adapt christianity to the culture they find themselves in let me make make a couple of s- statements here and i just would appreciate your reaction uh, on the one hand i mean i listened to i've listened to joe olstein on and off just to hear what he's about he is accused of being a prosperity gospel health and wealth but i, I actually don't i really don't hear that in his preaching i've never heard him actually go in that direction. What he does do a lot of, it seems to me, is what I'd call Proverbs preaching. That is to say, practical wisdom. If you apply this practical wisdom to your life, your life will tend to be more prosperous, healthy. And most people would agree that the advice in Proverbs is good as far as it goes in terms of that sort of thing. Then I heard Reinhold Bonnke, who was a healer, especially in Africa, with crowds of up to a million people and people being healed. And we interviewed him in our office once, and he was accused of prosperity gospel. And when we asked him that question, he said, you know, it's really easy for you in North America with all your wealth to criticize preachers who are preaching to the poor and telling them that they can be prosperous in the Lord, which always struck me as a fairly a fairly cogent response, even though he never actually got around to answering the question. But it does seem to me there is a stream in mainstream Christianity that does encourage prosperity. That is to say, we're called to help the poor. How do we help them? We help them to prosper. What is the relationship between mainstream Christianity and its emphasis on prosperity for the poor and prosperity gospel as as we understand it? Oh, there are so many good strains in that question. I really, I, I want to start actually with the, the Reiner Bonnke reference because he makes a point that's been made by a number of leading evangelists and theologians. I mean, I think of Wansuk Ma, for instance, who has said something similar, like you criticize the prosperity gospel once you've struggled to feed a family three times a day growing up in a situation where there just isn't enough food. Bonky, as I've been 
following his ministry, it's about healing and deliverance from spiritual oppression. It's not about prosperity in the sense of you give a thousand dollars and you're going to get a lot of money or you're going to have six jets just like I do. That that's that's a very different kind of message. So for one thing, the context of the global South is fundamentally different from the U.S. context. The second stream of this I want to follow is watching how teachings have changed over time because of the pressures of the very media that have facilitated preaching. And I think Oral Roberts is a really important example here because his early ministry, so late 1940s, his emphasis was like Bonke's even up to his kind of very late career period, kind of in the the near to present as he's kind of even been passing on the reins very recently. But, but Robert started off with that same focus on praying for healing of the sick, welcoming the presence of the Holy Spirit, and opposing spiritual oppression or casting out evil spirits even. But it was when Roberts was developing first a printed media ministry, but then radio and television, it was very expensive and it forced a shift in method even. He couldn't pray for as many people when it was being televised because it doesn't look as good on film if you pray for a hundred people in quick succession versus you tell the story of one person. He started praying less for deliverance from demons because that didn't gel well with middle-class American sensibilities. You can even see a, a, a more extreme kind of example of this with what happened with Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And the, the way that Baker put it in a documentary of their ministry was with the expansion of the satellite television, the tail started wagging the dog. And there was such an incredible need for funds just to keep this thing going that it created a kind of shift. And, and I think we see this in Benny Hinn's recent statements as well, where he said that he got distracted. He started kind of going in different directions. Then back to your kind of bigger umbrella question about how this relates to mainstream Christianity. I mean, I think this is where if you trace out Christian history from Bible times to the present, you're going to see an emphasis on preaching good news to the poor and calling those who have earthly blessings to use those to support others, especially in the church, but outside of the church as well. So you can find that in all kinds of different church contexts where no one is questioning orthodoxy. Or you can find kind of even more recent kinds of scandals with Jerry Falwell Jr., where he's not a prosperity preacher. He's not coming out of the same kind of tradition. But what is the issue? Again, it's financial accountability. It's a, a concern that money that's being given for the purpose of benefiting the poor is actually being directed towards benefiting individuals and their family and their friends. So one doesn't have to be in a prosperity theology category for that same bigger question to really be very salient of what is the purpose of money? What is the purpose of giving? How are funds being used? What is the kind of accountability? And what is both the heart, but then also what is the fruit or the result of the use of funds? 
really interested and curious about the stuff that you and Mark have brought, uh, both brought up in this instance, especially as it relates to talking about wealthy North American context and talking about some of these countries that are much more modest in the majority world. It does seem that we have the tendency to call these preachers and teachers that we were just talking about, people who believe in prosperity gospel. But is it even fair to use that language of prosperity gospel when talking about the teachings that is happening in the majority world if the context that they're teaching in is extremely different? Anytime you use a phrase like prosperity gospel or theology, whether it's a North American context or whether it's the global South, it's just necessary to be very conscious to not paint things in too broad of strokes. And I think that there can be a way of where you need to be careful to respect the variety in the global South and, and not idealize any more than you kind of paint under the same brush of criticism. What I mean there is that there's, there's variety in teachings and emphasis, whether you're talking about Nigeria or Brazil or South Korea or other places where there are actually quite prominent churches that are often categorized as prosperity. There are preachers there who are lining their own pockets. There are preachers there who get distracted and who do start talking more about money than about prosperity in the sense of prospering spiritually and having enough and having a kind of salvation that has material heft to it, like having a tangible meaning to it. And then you have others who are very discerning of that in their own leaders as well as in North American leaders. And so I think it's important to have a respect for lay Christians as well as leaders and to neither think that everyone is somehow being duped by glitzy televangelists, nor that everyone outside the U.S. is somehow kind of more naive or noble or free from the same kinds of just greed that can get into play in U.S. context. It's it's all much more complicated than that. And I would encourage uh, listeners who, who care to do so to actually research the, the teaching, the writing, and the preaching of anyone who is accused of being a prosperity or health and wealth gospel preacher because I generally find that they're much more nuanced than the media makes them out to be. I found this to be the case with Joyce Meyer. I found this to be the case with Joel Olstein. There are times, yeah, I listen to someone, I go, oh my gosh, he actually said that if if we give money to his ministry, our bank account will increase. So you do have to listen to him and one by one and try to hear what they're about. I'm, I'm curious in an American context, I think every culture that exists out there makes particular assumptions about wealth and money and prosperity. And so I, I'm curious when you just look at the American evangelical world in general, what type of messages about wealth and money and prosperity would you say that most American Christians and Christian leaders have absorbed and that comes out in their theology? There have actually been some surveys that have been done asking exactly that co- kind of question. So for instance, Time Magazine did a poll and 17% of Americans said that they would classify themselves as being prosperity gospel. But then 61% say that they believe God wants people to be prosperous. 31% agree that if you give money to God, God will bless you with more money. So the teachings or the beliefs are actually quite a bit more widespread than simply the kind of officially kind of dubbed prosperity gospel. I think that in churches writ 
large, there's, there's a lot of variety because there can be a kind of allergic reaction against anything that sounds prosperity related. And so churches that wouldn't consider themselves a part of that movement might actually say so explicitly. I, I think I've heard more preachers try to distance themselves from the word prosperity than who have said that they would affiliate with that movement. And sometimes that can lead to a kind of just embarrassment about talking about money. There's a, a need to apologize for it. There's a sense that it's fine to be wealthy if you're a business person, but not if you're a teacher. And that can actually create hardships for people who are in ministries and who are trying to lead churches, but who have had their options really constrained by the reputation of the larger movement. I, I would agree with you 100% in terms of that, the overall emphasis finding its place in all sorts of segments of Christianity. I was a member of an Episcopal estate, fairly wealthy Episcopal church in the Midwest here, and we did have, during one stewardship campaign, one man led the led the charge on the stewardship campaign. There was no question that he was saying that if we give generously to the church, God will, will, will bless us financially. That was in an Episcopal church, liberal Episcopal church. You will find that in all different churches. Yeah, so that's the amazing thing, yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will volunteer or donate, visit UGM.org. As we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, Paula White appears in many ways to be President Trump's personal pastor. She prays at key events and has done other things to kind of really showcase herself alongside him. You know, to what extent is President Trump influenced by the prosperity gospel, in your opinion? It's hard to say that the prosperity gospel is influencing him. It is parallel in, in terms of the affirmation of wealth to ideas that he has. It certainly is useful for him, but it's harder to say that his beliefs or practices have been influenced by it. He picked up on Paula White by hearing her on television and thinking, I like that teaching. I like that idea. It's harder to say that he's actually been changed so much, but rather that he finds it attractive for whatever his own reasons are. Does it also seem to you when you look at Trump's evangelical advisors, which is from what I understand, still kind of in an informal group. Does it surprise you at all to see someone like Paula White or I believe also Kenneth Copeland, who is a name that we didn't mention on here, but could be considered a prosperity gospel to see them on this list, which also includes, for instance, a decent number of Southern Baptists on there as well? I don't think it's surprising in the least. Trump is a businessman. 
And he likes the message that hard work is rewarded. He likes the message that wealth is a good thing. I I don't find any surprises. He also recognizes who's influential and who has a platform, who's going to um, be able to influence potential voters. I think it entirely logical from the perspective of attracting a contingent of Christian voters. These other names that we mentioned at the beginning, have they had much to do with politics, American or otherwise, in their careers? I mean, you can, someone like Falwell, who again doesn't fit in that list. I mean, Robertson would more fit in the list. So some of them have tried to avoid political statements. Others haven't. TDJ has been involved somewhat. So, I mean, I think it really depends on which individual you're talking about. And that's where, again, the the risk always of having a large category is that you can make an assumption that everyone in that category would be in the same place on on a political or a theological issue when I think that there's actually more more variety in that. Are there uh, other national leaders in other countries, especially Africa and Latin America, that find themselves sympathetic to Pentecostal slash prosperity gospel or, or find themselves in relationship with it as Trump has? I think you see that with someone like T.B. Joshua, kind of in the African context, or or kind of with the growth of the Brazilian kind of churches where there have been connections with government. So I think individual leaders, you can find some particular ones. Uh, in terms of name recognition in the U.S., you're not going to find as much overlap. But, but in a lot of Latin American contexts, it's just seen as perfectly normal and acceptable that there would be a close connection between pastors and political leaders, that it wouldn't even raise eyebrows and thus doesn't get the same kind of publicity as you get in the U.S. So, you know, in light of that, there are what I'd call, well, it's, this is a pejorative term. I don't usually like to use it, but it's what comes to mind. There are fear mongers about prosperity gospel, that it's super influential, that it's really sabotaging Christianity in the in America and the majority world. And yet it does seem, and my impression is it's kind of a niche world. It's in, in and of itself, it has its own little world, uh, but it doesn't really, its tentacles don't go out to larger society. What would be your impression? It's a question of cause and effect. I think here. There are certainly American cultural values of materialism and individualism and the persistence of the rag to riches success myth that are very prevalent, very influential. Often the books that do circulate in, say, African cultures are written by people like Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagan or Benny Hinn. So I don't want to diminish the influence or the attractiveness of kind of this myth of the American dream kind of model. But my question would be whether that's coming from the church or whether it's simply church leaders who are appropriating values that are abroad in the culture and then appealing to those same kinds of desires for wealth and material success. And and this is where, again, I go back to what else is being preached by those who are caricatured as prosperity. I mean, someone like Benny Hinn, a lot of what he preaches is intimacy with the Holy Spirit, need for the power of the Spirit, praying for healing, often even concern for the poor. What gets picked up on is 
kind of this this influence which is real, but sometimes is more of an importation of cultural values rather than an exportation of a kind of theologically based set of influences. That's a very good distinction. That's very helpful. Last year, we did a podcast about Rwanda and we had a guest on. His name is Charles Magisha. And I was just going to read this one quote that he said that I thought got at your point in an interesting way. He was talking about how there were different churches that the government was shutting down in Rwanda. And he said, the government gets irritated when you start preaching the type of American prosperity gospel, which many African preachers are learning from American television and YouTube. The government becomes protective of its citizens if a church or preacher begins to manipulate it. I think that there there's very much a concern of this. and But I think that that pairing of American prosperity gospel, because then which parts of this are the prosperity, which parts are the gospel, and which parts are just kind of an American influence and a particular model of what it is to succeed as an American or that, that whole American dream success myth. So one thing that does stick out to me when I, again, think about this cast of characters that we call prosperity gospel preachers is that many of them are, what, Gen X, boomers. I don't necessarily think of any millennial names that come off to the top of my head. Are there millennial prosperity preachers that I just don't know about? Or is this a movement that seems to be morphing or shifting as kind of a different generation comes up? So I think part of the phenomenon is that it takes a certain amount of time to raise in stature. So I think it's actually an open question. What is going to be kind of dominant in terms of who are the megachurch leaders, who are the media influencers 10 years from now? It is the case that most of the people that we've been talking about were born in the the 1960s or even earlier. I don't think that it's exclusively those individuals, though. And so if you think of someone like Ben Houston, who is the son of Brian Houston, the founder founder of Hillsong. So Ben is lead pastor of Hillsong Los Angeles. He was born in 1982, so he would kind of count as millennial generation. I think he falls within the same kind of umbrella that his father's ministry. So Brian Houston published uh, one of his books was called You Need More Money, although <laughs> um, huh. also yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I agree with him on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I could use some more money. Um, but Brian Houston says, I don't see myself as a prosperity preacher. There's only one gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of grace. But I do believe God blesses people. I believe in purpose. They should use that money. So you could categorize that as prosperity. And I don't see a sign that Ben Houston has really departed from that message. But he just isn't old enough to have developed the kind of platform that his father has. Or I think of someone like Chris Galanos, who was again born 1982. He um, is pastor of a church called Experience Life in Lubbock, Texas. He's been called the youngest megachurch pastor. And his church has been, depending how you rank it, as in the top 100 fastest growing or even as the number one fastest growing church if you go by percentage gain. So if you look on his website, I found the three-month tithe challenge to quote a money-back guarantee of sorts. We commit to you that if you tithe for three months and God doesn't hold true to his promises of blessing, we will refund 100% of your tithe. So you might call that parity teaching. It's there, right? I mean, if these are kind of up-and-coming influencers, megachurch pastors, I don't think it's necessarily disappearing. But on the other hand, if you look at other kinds of survey research, 
research on millennials and Generation Z, there is more of a kind of skepticism. I mean, these are folks who have grown up with the scandals of the the 1980s, like right in their formative growing up years, they're seeing people with sexual scandals and financial scandals, and they're being told, watch out for that prosperity gospel. You get more of that generation who are kind of saying they're concerned about things like immigration and poverty and climate change and social justice and using money to benefit the poor, not to kind of get lots of houses and jets and so forth. So I do think that there's a change in the culture, the rising generations. I don't know that kind of category of teaching on prosperity are going to go away because, I mean, I think there's still that desire culturally, regardless of Christian teachings. Like people want to be told things are going to be okay. They may want the money, but they also want the security that if you live well, it's going to be rewarded. I mean, this would go back to that kind of like Joel's Proverbs sort of teaching, right? Like if you do things well, you're going to be rewarded. And there's a kind of security in that, even if you're not greedy and wanting to make huge amounts of money. Wow. Well, lots of really good things to think about. Kind of okay leaving everyone on that cliffhanger just to think about that for themselves and reflect on it. But there does seem to be an opening, Morgan, for a millennial. I know. You might want to think about that. Oh, yeah. I'm already making a podcast. I'm sure we'll do that. (laughs) She's developing her platform. (laughs) If people would like to give us feedback about this podcast, they can do so. They can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcast. If you wanted to listen to that episode about Rwandan churches, that is episode 109. I want to remind everyone that this podcast, Quick to Listen, is made possible by people who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. I always you know, solicit Mark for his favorite articles of the issue. Tell us about your favorite article. We come back to this every once in a while because these stories are so amazing. And where this this September we featured in the testimony section, which is the last page of the last two pages of the magazine, we featured Thomas Tarrant, who was back in the day a white supremacist, a Ku Klux Klan terrorist. And he met Jesus in prison and turned his life around, so much so that he is, for years, and now is president emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute. Quite a dramatic transformation for him, and he wrote a book about that, and of course we try to summarize that in two pages, which is helpful, but I just think that testimony section we have is just is just a, a marvelous contribution to Christian literature, because it just talks about, when we're talking about the heart of the gospel, Christ's willingness, graciousness, and mercy to change the lives of people in the most extraordinary ways. Just to tie it back to our episode, you're not going to find the line in there that then says, and my life got so much materially better. I think we've even published some editorials that people talk about finding Jesus and then talk about how life continued to be hard. For- or got worse. Mm-hmm. For a while, yeah. Dermomo from the Sudan here a few weeks ago who talked about he just expected when they became a Christian that life would be harder. That was just part of the part of the deal. And he walked into it with his eyes wide open. Now is the time of the show that we call slow to speak, which is when we hear from our listeners. And last week, as most people know who are listening to this, we had a chance to talk about the impact of the transatlantic slave trade on the history of Christianity. And we got an email from a writer for CT, actually, that has spent a substantive amount of time in Africa himself. His name is Craig Keener. Mark, do you want to read the insights that he had 
Yeah, Craig is one of the leading New Testament scholars in, in America, if not the world today. He's just brilliant on many different fronts. So when he writes, I pay attention. Anyway, he did say this. I do wish, however, that more connections would have been drawn with prior Islamic slavery. Granted, some of the ideas used to allow slavery were Aristotelian. Those, of course, also help inform New Testament household codes. But that, too, reflected some Islamic influence by Aquinas' time. Muslims had long, long accepted enslaving non-Muslims. And even many of the, quote, subhuman, end quote, characteristics later attributed to Africans and ideas such as the curse of Ham appear in Islamic Arabic texts from the 900s. Of course, Arabs, like the Portuguese, had no problems with intermarriage. As one would expect, given past life and conflicts in Iberia, the Portuguese had many precedents for slavery among Arab Muslims. Of course, Arabs simply carried on the pre-Muslim Sasanian trade. Anyway, that does give a larger context to this whole issue that we at Quick to Listen like to keep in mind. Context is huge in, help, in helping us understand any phenomenon we're seeing. In case you're curious about the pre-Muslim Sasanian trade, this is how you spell Sasanian, and someone can email us and explain that to us. It's S-A-S-S-A-N-I-A-N. I thought this was a good comment, too, with regards to just like, man, history is always just layered on top of more history. Yeah. It's layered on top of yeah. more history. So again, send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com, if you have more feedback. <music> Now is the time we call Precious Moment. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark, I hope that you have something that brought you joy, even though I know it's been a physically challenging week. Physically challenging week. I think I mentioned last week that I was tearing apart my trailer, so I did that again this weekend. Found more problems. What happened? I was trying to take out a set of cabinets and I realized I couldn't do it because the ceiling had sunk and it was was preventing me from pulling it out. So I had to pull the air conditioner out and I'm going to have to fix the roof first. And at one level you think, ah, oh, it's so discouraging. But it's for me, it's like, oh, great, another project. <laughs> Something I can fix. The puzzle continues. Yeah. As you know, as listeners know, I do like to work with my hands and I do like to solve small engine, you know, home-based engineering problems. I just think that's so fascinating. And just trying to figure out how to take this thing apart because there was no instruction manual. How do you tear a trailer apart? How, where are the screws that hold this thing together? How are they hidden? And so a lot of times I just sit down and think, where is the screw that's holding this shelf in that I can't see? So all that appeals to the kind of logical engineering part of my life and it does give me joy. What is the hope for the trailer once you... I finished tearing it apart and then presumably also putting it back together. Yeah, putting it back together in a way that... Are you going to go camping with it? I mean, I've owned it for a couple of years now, so I have been doing that and do enjoy that. In my retirement years, I plan to do it a lot more. Tell us about the Galley Report. The Galley Report is a newsletter that I publish, CT publishes every week. You can find that at christianitytoday.com slash Report. Now, my wife says she just went on there and she said it was pretty hard from that page to find how to subscribe, but I encourage you to practice perseverance. And if you pray, God will lead you to the link that will help you subscribe. I promise it's that. That's definitely how the internet Because works. if you pray, you will prosper by being able to subscribe to the Galley Report. But a lot of people find it very helpful. We have some 20-some thousand people who get it and do get some pushback sometimes. But I always try to engage every email that comes to me. I learn a lot from the pushback, but I will say I do enjoy the compliments as well, how, how many people find it helpful. So, All right, Candy, do you have a precious moment for us? Last week, I taught 
a former student of mine how to cook a chili dinner. So I had her enrolled in my class on Evangelical America, and she's going off to graduate school in the fall, but she needed a place to stay this summer. So she's been staying in my basement for the last couple of weeks. And it turns out that she never learned how to cook for herself. So I've been trying to give her a few little lessons on survival before she goes off to graduate school. And she just had so much enjoyment of spending time with us that it was a delight to get to know her better and to send her off with some practical skills as as well as uh, teaching her. I love cooking with other people. So that's a really fun thing to get to share with her. It was a lot of fun. So can people find you online? Do you want to remind people the names of some of your books? So the book that I most recently published is called Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools, Reforming Secular Education or Reestablishing Religion. I recently published a piece summarizing this in the Washington Post. I also have a podcast of talk on Christian yoga, question mark, that's really related to this topic. And I've got a blog at Psychology Today. And you can also find me on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. My precious moment this week. I just finished this journalism fellowship that is based in doing Chicago journalism. It's a group called City Bureau. As people know, obviously, who are listening to this, I get to do this podcast, which is one element of audio journalism. There's lots of elements of audio journalism that I have been far more unfamiliar with, such as putting together radio stories and what it takes to cut clips and look for the quotes that you actually want to use, writing scripts, using programs. We use Audacity here for the podcast, but there's also other programs that you can use to edit your audio clips and so forth, and just kind of the mechanics that go into that type of stuff. We had some people that work in audio come and speak with us during this fellowship. So it was definitely a very cool experience for me just to get to learn different types of audio journalism skills and hopefully improve in that area overall. We worked on one story about African immigrants, and right now it looks like that show might get played on the local public radio station. I'm not sure if that will happen, but I think that's going to happen. So anyway, that was definitely my precious moment was getting to work on that this summer. Listeners, note yet another area of interest that requires a tremendous amount of time and dedication that Morgan participates in. I'm convinced she sleeps about two hours a night. Mark, we both have hobbies that we like doing. (laughs) You have so many that make so many demands on you. You're amazing. You're my idol. All right, guys, you heard it here first. You can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Thank you for listening to Quick to Listen. We truly appreciate it. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you want to get your podcasts. You can find us there. Thank you for everyone who rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts as well. And we also really appreciate that. Thank you everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by sweeps and we will see you all next week bye